Welcome back to Following Know It On, a Stormlight podcast. This week is episode 10. We will be doing chapters 31 through 35. I am very excited to talk about these chapters with you two. I've been looking forward to this for since we began this podcast, these these chapters. Uh, Paul, what are your two words for these my, chapters? My two words for these chapters are calming and destiny. Calming and destiny. Elliot? Good words, Paul. Good words. My two were impossible and light. Impossible and light. I feel like I don't even have to ask you guys about these words, and I know exactly how they, <laughs> but I'll ask you here in a second. Let's, let's discuss these. All right, Elliot, impossible and light. Would you like to expound upon these? Definitely. So impossible, I don't want to quite get into too much yet because we're going to get there. But at the very end of this section, at, at chapter 35, it it ends with this statement of basically what just happened should have been impossible. And that was an epic moment for me, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And then my second word, I, I struggled to come up with a second word for this episode simply because that first one just encompassed the the climax and everything that I want to talk about for this episode. But I, I chose light mostly because of actually the flashback flashback chapter with with Kaladin and the moment where his father Lirin uses the the purity of the the light of the the spheres to expose the the thieves that are coming to take them and just that cool moment of how sometimes just exposing someone's dirty act or their their shameful behavior can be enough to deter them and that was a that was a powerful moment for me yeah all right uh paul what are your uh two words and how would you like to explain them yeah so so i'm gonna talk about my second word first destiny uh destiny after reading these chapters, I, I feel like the application is pretty simple. Uh, talking about Kaladin and kind of how he's destined to become uh, what he's become and what's happened and how it was kind of it was kind of his destined I don't know route um, to survive um, and calming. I never done this but i i want to see if you know why i would have chose calming trevor do you have a guess as to why i would have chosen calming as one of my words calming well flipping the question mm -hmm. it's it's certainly an interesting word because we're in the middle of a high storm in mm -hmm. some of these chapters yes but i'm going to guess it has to do with sill because you love sill and sill is his anchor uh, even in high storms, so that's my guess. That that's a pretty good guess. So it's it's not so much that like we've seen we see a bunch of chaotic scenes with Shalon and with Kaladin, and I chose calming because both of the both of our protagonists here had to calm themselves. They had to like really keep a level head and try and stay in control and not go into panic or anything with with Shalon, uh we'll get into it here in a second with uh kind of some confrontation and things to do she has to like stop and think and make a calm decision and not not mess things up and similarly with kaladin um but i felt like it was a kind of anti word to choose because these are very very physically hectic scenes especially with the high storm um yeah those are those are my two words <laughs> all right that was deep i like it yeah, those are good words, guys. Before we go too further, let's do our spell check. We only have one word this week because we, heaven knows, we got plenty more content in this episode. Uh, this uh, this spell check is going to. We meet a new character in chapter thirty-two. His name is Lopin, and Lopin's nationality is spelled or is how would you say Lopin's nationality, Elliot? 
I think it's just Herdazian. Okay. You're getting good at these a little too good. Yeah. Paul? I'm catching on. Uh, so my best my best attempt to spell Herdazian is H-E-R-D-A-S-I-E-N. I thought you were going to get it, and then you went slightly astray. Oh, it's no. it's H E R D A Z I A N. Mm. I was about to ask if it was a Z. I thought that was. I wrote that, or I thought that at one point, and I was like, "Oh, that's too exotic. Like it's going to be easier than that, right?" <laughs> so, well, close, close. as we'll learn later, these Hardasians are pretty exotic, so we'll okay. it, it fits. Okay, uh, so I want to start at chapter 33 with the one Shalon chapter we have in this, this segment, and then we'll wrap back and start talking about Kaladin and what all happens to him. So the, the title of this chapter is called Cymatics, and my first listen of this chapter, the first time I listened to this chapter, I was bored, out of my mind. It was not very entertaining to listen to but i do you do get the revelation that elliot already came to quite early in this podcast of palindromic names uh capsule talks to shallan about palindromes and how holy the folding in half stuff is and uh symmetry but there's a picture that i sent you paul that i want you to open right about now uh this is at the beginning of the chapter and this is Capsule's, this is from Capsule's journal. And this is the visual representation of each of these cities that he's showing Shalon. <laughs> and I really enjoyed this on my read through of when I read uh, The Way of Kings for the first time. And that really made this chapter come to life for me. And I just wanted you to be able to see it since you yeah. haven't. I'm taking note of some of the spellings of these different cities and such. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> things that would come up. Um, He's getting smart. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And I like the like symbols and how they're kind of the, yeah, all, like all multi symmetrical for multiple ways and such. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, any, any opening thoughts on this chapter for you guys? So, uh as someone who was pretty bored in the first Shalon uh, stuff back in the first part of the book, um, I thought this chapter was pretty cool. I definitely understand the the stuff about the names and stuff. Not not exciting. I definitely agree with you on that. But later we get into Shalon actually trying to um, steal the the Soulcaster, and that's that's what I've been waiting for this whole time. So I thought it was a pretty exciting chapter. She hasn't she hasn't deliberately tried yet, but she has been confronted by mm -hmm. Yasna. Mm -hmm. Yes. Without Yasna really knowing, or maybe does she know? Yeah. Who knows? That's part of why it shows calming as, as one of my words, because she specifically stops and she feels as if maybe Yasna knows, or I got that that sense from it. Uh but she stops and just answers the question, which was what was it? Is capsule or someone trying to get you to steal it? And that answer is no. Like she didn't have to lie or anything, but she just kind of gets on edge there for a second and uh, worried about it. But... Right. I I think I was more on the side of of boredom in this chapter, in the sense that it was pretty slow. There were some good bits in here that I enjoyed reading and learning about. For instance, the the whole cymatics bit and the the part where capsule uses his little metal plate with the sand on it and then pulling his his violin bow across it to make a, a certain note and the the sand forming the the shapes which are match the shapes of the city that we we just looked at that that's a real thing i when i read that i i was really intrigued so i i did a little bit of googling and that's absolutely a real thing there's a whole field of study out there on the the vibrations made by sound and the way it forms patterns in sand or other liquids and things like that. So lots of really cool details there. My, my engineer brain came, came awoke at that moment and wanted to learn more, more about that, which was pretty cool. 
but I think overall this this was a bit of a of a slower chapter, and it also felt a little bit like a an excerpt from a romance novel. Actually, there was a whole lot of flirting back and forth between Shalon and and Cabsol, which that kind of got me a little confused because you you kind of get the impression that Cabsol as an ardent isn't supposed to have relationships or pursue romantic things like that. So the fact that he's so very blatantly flirting with Shalon seems a little bit maybe misbehaving of him. That was my take on it. A takeaway from this chapter that I got on my first listen through is Capsule is not your average ardent. He, yeah, or Shalon is very used to the devout old man ardent who's very, you know, I, I'll, I'll look after you because you're my, that's my job, that type of thing. Capsule is confident, flirtatious. He's, he's, he swears in the episode and he has multiple, he says he has multiple things uh, to ask for forgiveness from the, the almighty to Shalon. And he's openly flirting with a girl who's younger than him. And she's supposed to have a chaperone and she doesn't need one because he's an ardent, but that's, that kind of just puts her own pious self uh, at ease because she is openly flirting with this ardent capsule, but she's like, Oh, it's fine because nothing can come of it. So uh, that's her, that's her excuse. Yes. She, Shalon's supposed to have a chaperone. Yes. It's like slurring. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is difficult just for a moment. I mean, I, there's a lot of show sounds there. Gotcha. It just said the words. Just said the words. I say that of... five times fast. Yeah, she... <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, uh, like I said, it's not. That's been my thoughts on most of the Shalon chapters thus far. Is that they're not that interesting, but they're they're helpful for getting a better picture of of the world. And most of the chapters, I guess, have more stuff going on um, than this. Uh, we. I guess we were kind of ahead because we already knew about the names, or at least mostly, um, and stuff. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we were just too far ahead that it was it was boring to us. We already knew it all, right? I do think that the the Sri Lanka chapters being a little slower, even though it's sometimes a little bit frustrating because they're so different from the the Kaladin chapters, for instance. I think it actually is some pretty clever writing in that it helps with the pacing of the book in general, because the, because the Kaladin chapters are so exciting and so fast paced. I think if it was all Kaladin chapters, you'd get pretty worn out and pretty overwhelmed too quickly. And so the Shalon chapters force you as a reader to just kind of sit back for a little bit and, and soak in some just conversation and information before you get thrown back into the the action with Kaladin again. So I think it helps the pacing of the novel overall, even though sometimes I get a teensy bit bored in them. Yeah, you're learning more depth depth about Roshar, and I'll talk about something that Yasna comments at the end of the chapter here in a second. But without these chapters, the Kaladin chapters don't mean as much to you. So the more you get em- embraced yep. in this world, the more you're uh, the more you're invested in Kaladin's story. I had I had one other thought in chapter chapter thirty three. That, that I wanted to note on. And I don't know if this is a prediction or, or just a question, but Shalon has made a couple references now to the the Dawn Singers, which I think is a, is a cool name. And it makes me want to know more about those. But she specifically talked about when she first walked into the, the Palinaeum, she describes, I think that first room they come into is called the Veil. She describes that as being, perhaps this was cut by the Dawn Singers is, is the way she... She references it, and we we learned that the Dawn Singers provided. I think it says that they provided the the glyphs and the the alphabet letters that they have, and just that, plus all the 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 cymatics bit that we got with the the vibrations from sound forming the patterns, and then those patterns being seen in the rocks that the cities are built on. All of that just kind of leads me to to assume or jump to a maybe a prediction that did the Dawn Singers create Roshar, and did they do it using song or sound and is that why the the rock formations that the cities are on have like the patterns that they they do did they form those as the roshar was being sung into existence by the dawn singers i'm i'm kind of 
going out there and making a bit of a, I don't know if it's a prediction or a guess or a question, but things seem to kind of be tying together here that might make sense. This from a Tolkien scholar who, uh, where Middle Earth is sung into existence. <laughs> yes, this is not uh, unheard of in the fantasy worlds for sure. So that that definitely probably is leading my my thoughts here. That the fact that Tolkien's world, one I'm one I love so much, was also created through through music. That this one being also created through song or music doesn't seem very far fetched. And maybe this is me just wanting this to be the case, but I. I, I want to look for more to to show to talk about on this. I did not know about that, and I have to say that I'm a large fan of that that prediction because that sounds extremely cool. And learning, I didn't know that was a real thing. You mentioned that about like music making like patterns and such in sand. That sounds really cool. Um, so I, I like that. Honestly, I, I hope that happens. I'm gonna interrupt you real quick here, Paul. Uh, Elliot, if you look over your shoulder uh, at Roshar as a whole, what, how would you describe the general shape of Roshar? It, it kind of looks like a like a spiral almost, like it's you know two arms kind of going off in a, a spiral shape, perhaps some symmetry there. Right. I don't know if that's what you're getting at. I am. So I always thought Roshar looked like a hurricane. Oh, as, yeah. as a hurricane yeah. kind of spins across the ocean, it looks like it looks like a high storm if the high school if a high storm is spinning. So could they have created Roshar with the cymatics of sing of singing it into existence with this pattern? Perhaps. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. We'll see, I guess. Maybe Noadon will tell us whenever we meet him, our, our favorite knowledge spren. Our I, friendly neighborhood knowledge spren. <laughs> I'm afraid that this is going to be something that's so buried deep in the lore of this world that it's going to be years before I get my answer to this one, but I'm going to keep on the lookout regardless. All righty. Uh, good, good, uh, good thoughts. As we push on, uh, Paul, you mentioned Noadon. I want to highlight some Noadon before we dive into Kaladin. At the beginning of chapter 34, there is this little prelude to the chapter, and I will read it for you guys. Uh, the prelude to chapter 34 says, I walked from Abamabar to Urethiru. This quote from the eighth parable of the Way of Kings seems to contradict Varla and Symbian, who both claim the city is inaccessible by foot. Perhaps there was, there was a way constructed, or perhaps Noadon was being metaphorical. So this mention, I just wanted to highlight, because what is the title of our podcast? Following Noadon. Correct. And this is the first reference we get to Noadon actually going somewhere. So Noadon is walking or he says he's walking the scholar here contradicts noadon but noadon says i walked from abamabar to uathiru and i'm fairly certain that neither of these cities are on that map behind you um elliot so we're following if he's walking from abamabar are... to uathiru are we following him are we also going from abamabar to uathiru perhaps you're, you're confusing me more than answering questions but it's <laughs> it's an intriguing some intriguing thoughts yeah my my thought on this is that we've seen some places like like we're, we're in alethkar right and we know alethkar used to be called alethala right correct i'm i'm i don't know but it could be that places that we kind of know or do exist used to be called a different name back whenever this was written so that's that's my one thought on that. Um, we've seen mention of Yurathiru, right? Wasn't that a spell yes. word, check word for me? It yeah, was, I, yes. <laughs> but so Yasta asked about it in chapter thirty-three, uh, literally the page before, <laughs> and she asked if Capsule could recreate the pattern of Yurathiru with his cymatics plate. It was kind of a a 
a jibe at him. He, she knew what the plate did, and she was flippantly asking, oh, do you know everything about Yuthiru too? And Capsule said, oh, Yuthiru is just a fable. And then she retorted, I, I was expecting you to believe in fables, sorry. And uh, Shalon thinks Yasna is really rude. But uh, so Yasna is curious about Yuthiru, and the Knights Radiant are from Yuthiru from the flashback that Dalinar got with the Shardbearers. So that's... Noadon walked there, or he says he walked there. And... That's what we know. It's probably a pretty long walk, honestly. That's my guess. But I would love to go to Yurithiru and see, because I thought the Knights Radiant, which we saw in the past, were, were very cool, and I want to know more about them, so... Definitely. Hopefully, we can just follow Noah on over there. That's my hope. Um, Alrighty, we've got a young Kaladin flashback chapter, and then we've got three, three good Kaladin chapters to discuss here. The there's a quick flashback chapter of Lyrin and Kaladin. It's late at night, their or Kaladin's mother's already asleep, and. Liren is talking to Kaladin about what he should do after he finishes his studying at Carbranth. And he kind of off the cuff tells him to stay in Carbranth, don't come back to Hearthstone, there's nothing for you here. And when you meet a pretty girl, don't take her away from her family, like I did. Um, so we learn two things. Liren turns to alcohol when he's sad or... Uh, late at night, kind of depressed or something. And two, that Kaladin's mother is from Carbranth. And she, that being from Carbranth, she's going to be a higher higher non, is what they call it, of higher birth than most of the people in Hearthstone. So we get some Kaladin uh, lore, if you will. You you wrote in our outline that that Liren doesn't strike you as a a drinking man, and I I laughed when I when I saw that because almost the exact same words were in my notes for this this chapter. I I thought the exact same thing when I read this. Of I was pretty surprised to see Liren turning to alcohol. He doesn't he doesn't seem like that kind of person. He seems very sure of himself. He seems very confident and sure maybe he's got doubts but i wasn't expecting to see uh, a vice like this to, to come out with lear and so i was a bit surprised but we do see later in this chapter that he's maybe not quite as intoxicated as as we think he is because he's he still has his wits about him to to outsmart all of the the townsmen that are coming to steal his his spheres but as i mentioned with my my word to intro this i i really like this chapter it, it had a really cool light versus dark symbology to it I also felt similar similarly. I I didn't I basically just assumed that this was a really dark, difficult time that that Liren was having uh that had him turn to to alcohol. Um but even still we we see how kind of outspoken he was with the thieves and such and I think that was kind of interesting and it probably influenced his approach to that in a little bit because it was very no fear um just jumping right at him kind of attitude and uh i thought that was interesting that was a pretty worrisome scene i got really worried while reading that 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 Liren was just gonna die and he was making a, a dire mistake yeah. um and i thought this was gonna be another tragic story of kaladin's past um but thankfully, it, it wasn't quite that bad. <laughs> Kaladin immediately thinks that these are highway robbers, that they're they're ruffians from another town that are moving through to rob buildings and stuff like that, and then like run off in the night. But what he doesn't realize is these are his fellow Hearthstone villagers. These are Liren's friends, Liren's co-workers, who... I mean, how big is Hearthstone? We have, I don't think we've been given a number, but 
it's not that big and this is the community coming to rob liren because they think the the uh gemstones from wistio aren't his and they're going to give them back to rashon because they think that they belong to rashon so the future for liren doesn't look bright that they are literally willing to bond together to go rob him if they're if they're expecting him to not tell the truth about wistio's death all right uh before we jump into these actual Kaladin chapters any closing thoughts on the flashback none here nothing super super notable I'm uh, definitely looking forward to talking about these Kaladin chapters alright uh, let's do it it looks like I'm losing you guys wake up we got we got chapters to talk about let's <laughs> let's go alright uh, chapter 32 it starts with the bridge crews getting new recruits. The bridge crews, and Gaz originally isn't going to give him any more recruits, and after he twists his arm a little bit, Kaladin gets his pick of whoever he wants, and right when he's about to pick one of the taller, more able-looking uh, bridgemen that are coming in, uh, what happens, gentlemen? This was such a, a Kaladin move. He he looks at all the, the different possible bridgemen. He thinks to himself, oh, I really need a big, tall, strong person to balance out my crew. But then the little scrawny guy who only has one arm pipes up and says, oh, take me. And and Kaladin can't not take him. He, he realizes instantly that, oh, if that guy goes on any other bridge crew, he will die the first run. He will have no chance. And Kaladin has to take him under under his wing. It is, it is such a Kaladin thing to do. <laughs> Just based off of numbers, Kaladin actually nets negative at, at the end of this or at the end of this <laughs> encounter. Because not only can Lopin not carry a bridge because he only has one arm. He is he's holding a spot on his bridge crew that Gaz won't give him another crew member for. So yep. in in a sense, he actually has less crew members than he did at the start of this. Mm-hmm. The the guy though, Lopin, he makes a comment though where he says, "Oh, you won't regret this." And part of me kind of wonders if part of me wants to believe him. Part of me want, wonders if he's got a little something up his sleeve that. Maybe Kaladin will later on actually realize that this guy's a valuable member of his team. Maybe not to carry bridges, but maybe he's got some skills. I hope. So too, he mentions that he's won fights against three men before, and we don't know if he uh, he seems very talkative. He could have a, a big mouth and being boastful or exaggerating, but uh, I mean, it sounds like he's got spirit, and he, you know, he's. He, looks like he sees something in Kaladin so um, I'm hopeful for their their relation and that uh, yep same well yeah so in this chapter they're still working on this like side carry of like how to carry their bridge differently uh, as to avoid Avoid pain and death with his try to try and spare as many bridgemen as possible. Right. I I noted that by this point, bridge four are pretty well trained. They're Kaladin. They they've gotten behind Kaladin. They are ready to to do what he asks, and he's got them really well organized and to the point where they can try new things and try and carry the bridge differently and try and solve this this huge problem of bridgemen always get slaughtered and they've come a long way since when we first saw bridge four this is this is pretty cool they're so well trained to the point where when they try this side carry they're even they're still faster than the other bridge crews even when they're doing the side yep. carry he's and he they're not even running straight they're running at an angle and so then when they turn there the bridge is facing 
the Parshendi to block the arrows, and then they run an angle again, and then and so they they still they run in a, a zigzag, so they still end up where they're supposed to end up, and so they're probably covering twice the ground with the bridge covered on its carried on its side, and they still beat all the rest of the bridge crews to the to the chasm. That's how well trained Bridge Four is, and it's only been two weeks. It was really cool reading about how well that worked. It was cool. I, I kind of doubted the side run. I thought something would go wrong and that it would end up leaving them vulnerable. And it talks about how it was it was definitely a risk um, for Kaladin to take and to lead that. But it they, they ended up really well off as far as their crew. Um, not quite the same for everyone else, unfortunately. So... When I, I remember listening to this for the first time and thinking ex- thinking about exactly how the the chapter pans out. I was thinking, okay, if they get out in front, everyone else is going to see them do this and they're going to try to do it themselves, right? And then two, two or three paragraphs later, that's exactly what happens. Kaladin sets his bridge, they all run back, and Kaladin realizes that he's just thrown away so many of these lives not even thinking about what might happen if he does this I'm going to read a quote this is when they've already set their bridge they're back behind cover and Kaladin's turning to look at the battle Kaladin watched really watched He never studied the tactics and needs of the entire army in these assaults. I deflected attention to the other bridge crews, Kaladin thought. That got us to the chasm too soon and slowed some of the others. And since he'd run out in front, many other bridgemen had gotten a good view of how he'd used the bridge as a shield. That had led them to emulate Bridge 4. Each of the crews had ended up running at different speeds, and the Alethi archers hadn't known where to focus their volleys so to soften the Parshendi for the bridge landings. The, the entire tactics of this battle just made sense to me in my like I think this is so well written that it's this is all very logical as for what we've been given. Of course Kaladin's going to try to keep his men alive. that's what he does. And of course everyone else is going to see this and say, oh, we can do that. That's really smart. And then literally everyone dies. 200 bridgemen die at as we find out in chapter 34. That is a lot of bridgemen. And only, what, four bridges get set on this, like, at the chasm, and some of the soldiers have to help. That I, I just love the writing of this battle because it's it's so logical to me. It uh, goes very poorly, like you said, with four, four bridges being set. Um, Kaladin emphasizes how uh, he feels responsible that that he basically lost the entire battle for for the army by by doing this and not sharing that information or not um, doing it and kind of just jumping the gun almost. And so that, that really weighs on him. I felt some really strong emotions as I was reading this chapter. There's there's that moment exactly what you're talking about, Paul, where, where Kaladin feels gutted that his decision to try and save his men had these unforeseen consequences of getting the the army just just wrecked and again this is this is classic kaladin he he just feels so much for those those around him he he has so much empathy he he even has a moment where he's standing there watching one of the other bridges almost get there but doesn't and he 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 wants to run out and, and help them that's just such so kaladin but I was torn because I think I think what he did was the right thing. I think Kala doesn't feel like he did the right thing after all this is said and done. He feels like those 200 deaths are, are on his head. But I think he's wrong. I think that he was absolutely within his right to do everything he could to save his, his men. I mean, as they're marching into this battle and Kaladin's surveying the situation, he realizes all of my men are going to die. This is going to be the worst situation. I don't have enough men to do this. And he decides, all right, we're going to try this side carry to try and save these men. And I think, 
I think the the responsibility for the death of all those bridgemen is not on Kaladin's head. It's on Sadius's head. I think the fact that Sadius is using Bridgman the way he is, this was was always going to be the result. At some point, the Bridgman were going to fight for themselves and and not the army. And I think they have every right to. They're they're being used as human shields. They they absolutely should stand up for themselves, and that's exactly what Kaladin is doing. So maybe even if two hundred men just died because what he did, maybe this changes how how Sadius does bridge runs afterwards. So so maybe hundreds more lives are are maybe saved because of what Kaladin did. And that's a a long winded thought, but I I felt very passionately in this this chapter, which tells you it was written well. I I, f- I very much agree that these deaths are on Sadius's head. And I think it really shines a light on how corrupt and difficult the infrastructure of this military is. Um, yes. That Kaladin can be such an outstanding and innovative leader at such a low level, and they can work it to pin him for the deaths of these men um, just because of the infrastructure of how, of how it all works. So not to contradict you guys, but would you not agree that so there there's a there's a military structure. Whether that military structure is fair and honorable, that's another question. But Kaladin going against orders to carry it his own way without thinking about anybody else, is that not selfish? Well, he was thinking about this whole crew. It wasn't just for him. Right, but he wasn't thinking about the other bridgemen. True. I think there's an element of I think there's an element of selfishness to it. He is thinking about himself and he is thinking about his his bridge crew, but I think in a, in my mind it's it's entirely justified. I think that Kaladin is doing everything that he can to save the lives of his men. I don't know that he should be expected to be responsible for more than that. He's the bridge leader for Bridge 4. His responsibility is the men of Bridge 4. And he does a great job of keeping them alive. And I don't think the the repercussions of what he did, the, the collateral damage, catastrophic as it is and very regrettable as it is, I don't think that the responsibility for that falls on Kaladin's head, but I could see how someone could see otherwise. And I can, I know Kaladin feels otherwise. Well, uh, Gaz and Lamoral certainly felt otherwise. And they came, they came walking up fairly quickly to bridge four and Kaladin and Kaladin is lucky that he did not get killed on the spot that he, he knows that he has to play it very wisely or else they will just literally throw him into the chasm that they're, they're hiding right next to. So he, he makes the point that it'll look like they're covering something up if they kill him. And so they need to keep him alive and Lamoral sees the logic in that. So he does keep him alive, which is really pretty, pretty brilliant, honestly, that he can, that he could think on the fly like that and he genuinely didn't mean for this to happen and he's he's still smart enough to get out of this and then yeah, he gets that was clever quick thinking and then he gets beat up <laughs> it's uh, it's only getting worse after that then he gets strung up uh not quite yet that's not till 34 a uh, quick thing, and still in chapter thirty-two, Elliot, you said more evidence of Kaladin using stormlight. Do, would you like to discuss this? Yes, more another another little crumb of of evidence for my theory. When he does get beat up, he his purse of fears is broken open, and his fears all spill out. And it's noted that they're done; they don't have stormlight. And there was actually, if you flip backwards in the chapter go to where while they're making the charge, there is a, a vivid description again of him finding this surge of energy where 
where there wasn't any. He he feels like he's going to fall, and then he feels like this this surge of, of energy you know burst through him. That that's got to be him using the light out of those out of those spheres, and we get even more on this in chapters thirty four and thirty five. Mm-hmm. I love the I love the imagery in the chapter thirty two when he's when he uh, gets that surge of energy. It it describes him as a sail pulling a a boat behind him, like the yeah. bridge, pulling the bridge behind him. I thought that was so cool because it, it's a very cool image in my mind of physics working. He's just picking up the entire bridge and moving it with him, and all the rest of the bridgemen are kind of just there with him, and he's moving the whole thing by himself. It it even describes the the experience he's feeling as the strength buzzing through him and mixing with his blood, and all of that just makes me think of what we've seen Zeth do. And so I think I have a word I can put on this now, and that word is surge binder. I think Kaladin is a surge binder, and he doesn't know it yet. All righty. Uh, by that, by the end of this chapter, somebody else might know it though. Uh. Or by the end of chapter 35, rather, somebody else might know it. Yep. Um, yep. So he gets strung up. And let's take a moment to congratulate Paul on his uh, on his prediction of getting strung up. Congratulations. I'm so happy. I, I, I didn't, whenever I made the prediction, I had a slight, you know, I, I made the prediction for a reason because I thought it might happen. But it actually happened. And I was like, oh, wow. I have to give a lot of credit to Elliot because I feel like the strung up wasn't that far-fetched, but I would not have cut onto the Stormlight thing absorbing, but that, it hasn't been confirmed, but it's been confirmed. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> there's way too much evidence at this point, and we'll even look later at the very end of the chapter, like, 35, like, it's just so blatant. Like he's he's just absorbing all the stormlight, and he just goes bananas. He's, he's <laughs> it's it's epic. And I gotta say, I'm I'm so impressed, Paul, by by your prediction actually, because because mine was kind of based on some little little clues I I found along the way. Yours was so specific and so out there about him getting strung up. I would never have guessed that, and you nailed it spot on. That's exactly what's happening right here in Chapter 34. Right. I knew because the main character always is under like adverse situations, right? But they don't die, so this is the whole... Yep. You know, ooh, he's supposed to die, you know, thing. But uh, but the, the imagery we got also with the... of the the high storm and such was so vivid and intense um that like he shouldn't survive right and that was one of my words destiny um he was he seemed almost destined or fated to um to survive just barely just kind of by a thread Um, yep but before we get into the the high storm itself because i have a lot of thoughts there i did want to actually read a quote uh, before the the high storm actually arrives, so Kaladin is is strung up at this point, but the other bridgemen are still around him. And this quote so perfectly captures for me how far Bridge Four has come. Here's what they what they say to him. Uh, I think this is Rock speaking. Yep, this this is Rock speaking. He says, "Well, is this? We will remember you, Bridge Four. We won't go back to how we were." Maybe all of us will die, but we'll show the new ones. Fires at night, laughter, living. We'll make a tradition out of it for you. That was so cool of they're even at the point where they don't even need Kaladin to inspire them anymore. He's awoken this desire to care and to live in them, and they're going to go on doing this even if Kaladin dies in this high storm, which they're completely expecting. Like This is so far different from how they were when we first met them the just beaten down deject bridgemen and they've come so far that they're they're willing to continue on Kaladin's legacy even after he dies it's exactly what Lamoral was afraid of two chapters previous yep. he yep even though Kaladin doesn't die he's already a martyr for them 
he mm-hmm. they are willing to carry on this legacy as they're expecting him to die here and he's already become Lamerl's worst nightmare even though Lamerl's dead at this point mm-hmm. <laughs> yep that actually i was taken aback by that uh i guess this is my sylphrena moment for the for the week i loved the little conversation so whenever Kaladin wakes up and he he's hanging there by his by his feet he uh still is like they beat you up but don't worry i tripped one of them three times yeah and so it was it was a very like <laughs> she was so serious in that like don't do not worry like yeah. i got your back i got it it's fine <laughs> i got you. him i got him yeah i got him for you like don't worry about it things have been taken care of i took things into my own hands and uh, I thought that was really funny. But she, she says that Lamro had been executed. And I was actually pretty surprised like that he was just straight up executed. But Kaladin was, was being strung up. Um, it's, it's their hierarchy pride thing, right? Where <laughs> no, no Dark Eyes could have this much power over the, the army to have such a catastrophic failure. It must have been Lamro's fault. So mm. they're going to punish Lamoral because they they refuse to believe that a Dark Eyes could have this much power. I see. And then the High Storm arrives. And boy does it arrive. What an epic what an epic moment. I guess up until now I I had known about the, the power of the high storms, but I don't think I fully appreciated just how powerful they really are until this moment. The the description of Kaladin being blown, you know, horizontal on this rope where he's just flapping in the wind like a flag. I mean, can you imagine how much wind force it would take to to do that? This is an incredible like hurricane level or greater storm that hits. And this this is this is what happens every week in Roshar. These high storms roll over and just destroy the landscape with this power i was i was impressed yeah i i did i specifically remember that image i specifically remember that image of like him like flapping in the wind like a flag and i was like yeah one how do you hold on Two, that's like so much power that's so so impressive um and stuff but yeah and it talked about how it seemed so abrupt like there was almost a, a direct wall of the storm and it hit, and yep. when it hit, it was just go time for 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 a long time. Um, and it talked about throwing entire rocks up and like super far and stuff, like boulders and stuff, which was uh, very one of, strong. One of my favorite descriptions of the high storm is it drops a boulder on the roof that he's tied to, and he doesn't see it or hear it but he feels it. That's the strength of the high storm. He doesn't hear this massive boulder smashing on this roof next to him. He feels it. And that's how he knows it's there. That's how loud and powerful this high storm is that it is the rain drowns out the thunder. That's how, that's how loud this, this high storm is. It's so cool to me. Incredible. Harkening back to your sill moment. I want to read a, an excerpt uh, of this high storm. Each moment was a struggle. The wind yanked him left, then hurled him right. He couldn't know how long it lasted. Time had no meaning in this place of fury and tumult. His numbed, battered mind started to think he was in a nightmare, a terrible dream inside his head, full of black, living winds. Screams in the air, bright and white, the flash of lightning revealing a terrible, twisted world of chaos and terror. The very buildings seems blown sideways, and the entire world askew, warped by the storm's terrible power. In those brief moments of light when he dared to look, he thought he saw Syl, standing in front of him, her face to the wind, tiny hands forward, as if she were trying to hold back the storm and split the winds as a stone divided the waters of a swift stream. I love that so much. <laughs> After all of this... Syl is standing there with her her hands out in front of her, trying to help, and I'm just like, oh, no, oh my my heart, Syl. <laughs> yeah. 
what what a sill moment i love that that moment too that was so so indicative of her personality of she's she's such this small being that can hardly lift a leaf and yet she despite all that she's gonna try and stand up to a high storm this incredible power and even though she's not making a difference she is making a difference by by just standing up there and trying to protect Kaladin. It was it was emotional. Mm-hmm. I actually had a I guess a minor prediction while while listening to this. Uh it talked about the the high storm having a windsprint all around and such, and I thought that maybe Sylfreda would like talk to her like windsprint friends, I don't know, and or or something would happen like that, or that they would find this like fondness with Kaladin almost like Sylfreda has, and there would be more to go into that, I guess. Uh because I feel like we haven't seen much windsprint other than stuff with Kaladin, like with Sylfreda and also I don't remember the term for it, but whenever he's doing his whole routine with the spear, it says it looks as if Windsprint were dancing around him and that sort of thing. And he's always had this kind of affinity with wind. And I mean, maybe that's how he he survived. Um, But I thought there might have been another connection made in that uh, avenue. We haven't seen any more personified Windsbrand except for Syl, so mm-hmm. we might that's... meet one of those soon. Who knows? Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Or that's I was kind of hoping for that. Um, didn't happen, but who knows? But instead of more personified Windsbrand, we do meet someone or something in the the midst of this storm. All. I'll admit I still don't feel like I, I totally understand what happened to, to Kaladin in the midst of this high storm, and I've read it twice now. But he meets this this face, this giant face that comes out of the high storm, and it describes the the storm as calming, or or Kaladin's not aware of the storm or or something. He he enters into this moment of of peace and calmness where he sees this face and the face disappears and and that's like that's it. But I, I could just I couldn't help but wondering, did Kaladin just meet the Stormfather? Is that who who that was in the heart of the storm? I'm I'm very confused. I'm very interested and I'm very intrigued by by what just happened and I want to learn more about it. When when I heard, read this for the first time, I had no mental image of this being because the the explanation that it gives is so uncomprehensible. It yeah, says exactly. In that darkness, an enormous face appeared just in front of his, a face of blackness yet faintly traced in the dark. It was wide, the breadth of a massive thunderhead, and extended far to each side. Yet somehow it was still visible to Kaladin, inhuman, smiling. So it says it appears right in front of him. But it's as big as a thunderhead, and he can see the whole thing. So a thunderhead is like miles wide. Yeah, right. how is this even like my, physically possible? My mind, when I read this the first time, I was like, okay, right in front of him, a face. Oh, huge face, and he can see the whole thing. I was like, wait a minute, something something doesn't add up here. And yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> it's also very, at least. My man, it's very like terrifying imagery because it talks about how how dark like it is, but you can't see it. That it's not human, but it's smiling. I don't, I do not like that imagery at all. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm curious to to figure out what the heck that is. And right after the face disappears, his sphere is uh, infused. Uh, it wasn't infused before that, and right as it disappears, his sphere is infused. And then, right after the high storm, Rock comes out with Teft, and Teft is debating with himself whether to look or not, and Kaladin looks as dead as anyone Teft has ever seen. The, the book says, 
Teft had seen enough dead men on the battlefield to know what he was looking at. Teft is 100% certain that Kaladin is dead. And then his eyes uh, snap open. And he's not. Woohoo! <laughs> Go Kaladin! Epic. Big, big moment right there. Very, very powerful. Well, how is he not dead? And it, it's it impossible. Exactly. It leads into my my word for for this this chapter, which was impossible. And I just have to read the the section where Teft is processing this at the end of the chapter, where where Teft is thinking, an empty sphere after a storm. He thought, and a man who's still alive when he should be dead. Two impossibilities. Together, they bespoke something that should be even more impossible. And and Paul, like you were talking earlier, perhaps we haven't 100% confirmed my theory of Kaladin and Surge Binder, but there's so much evidence now that it just has to be true. There's no other explanation. In my mind right now, it's confirmed um, that Kaladin's using... He, they come, and it's the day after this high storm, and the, the sphere's not infused anymore, so... Yep. There's really no explanation uh, at this point with, for the amount of occurrences we've seen with it. Even, even with how much Teft cares about Kaladin and how shocked he is to see Kaladin just opened his eyes, he is still more taken aback by the the sphere that is done that drops out of his hand. He 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 looks at two impossibilities happen back to back to each other. And he starts processing the sphere first, and then Kaladin. That's how surprised he is to see a, a done sphere right after a high storm. And and for me, the possibilities are are endless of where do we where do we go with this now? Is Kaladin going to learn how to wield this? Is he going to get to like Zeth level of of being able to imbue himself and and be even more awesome? Or are we going to go the whole rest of this book without Kaladin figuring this out? Is is Dalinar and Elokar and Sadius going to figure out that there's all of a sudden this surge binder here in the bridge crew? Like, where are we going from here? I, I, I'm having, I had a really, really, really hard time not reading further after prepping for for this episode, but I'll have to wait until until tomorrow to to go read more because I'm going to do that. I, I can imagine 15 different ways this can go now, and all of them are are really intriguing. I mentioned before that I really want to see Zeth and Kaladin meet up in some way, shape, or form. Yes. And so I feel like this plays into that a little well, because now they, if he figures out, Kaladin figures out how to use this Stormlight, they'd be on kind of an e- even playing field, right? You know? So yep. They've got, they've got of, something in common now. They do. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very much... Now that this prediction has been correct, that's the this is the new one I'm jumping to, and I really hope it it comes out and that Kaladin and Zeth end up intertwined somehow their 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 paths. So here's a couple couple things to highlight. Moving on, assuming Kaladin is confirmed as a surge binder, as you guys have described to yourselves, there are two things to think about with surge binders. One is the only confirmed surge binder on Roshar at the moment killed Gavilar. So, Ooh. Ooh. if Ooh. you are a surge binder, that may not be the best thing for you in Alethkar and in an Alethi army. Two, Dalinar is really into this Way of Kings book, and so were the Knights Radiant. And Dalinar has been talking to Sadius on that he's convinced that surge binding and the powers of the Knights Radiant are real and we simply don't deserve them anymore. So, if Kaladin is surge binding, Dalinar might want to know about it. You're adding a whole new list of possibilities to my already massive list. This, this is going to get good. I can feel it. I can feel it. I'm excited for you guys to keep reading. I it's it's getting good. Here we go. 
this was a good spot to end like to to end at but also a very very big cliffhanger of oh what's gonna happen next what do you want to bet the next chapter is probably a shallan chapter i'm sure it's gonna be i haven't even looked (laughs) i can certainly confirm that it is a shallan chapter (laughs) Uh, of course and the chapter after that is a color and flashback chapter so uh jokes about jam yep (laughs) yep jam and bread let's go all righty uh any closing thoughts on this this section gentlemen you guys have done very well so far i think we said it all it's the the annie is getting upped even more the bar is, is getting raised higher and higher all right uh let's continue reading and we will reconvene next week thanks for joining me uh Elliot and Paul. Farewell. Laters. <laughs>